Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. And Father, as we come to you today, we come um, with gratitude, with hope, with a desire that you would meet us in this place and speak to us. And so would you help us? Would you give us a clarity and attentiveness? Would you, would you open our hearts? Would you open our ears? Would you bring conviction where conviction is needed and bring uh, a healing and hope where healing and hope are needed? Would you help us to see that the reality of who Jesus is and what you did in and through him extends in our lives, but also into our city, into our world, through your people, and show us the role we have to play in that today. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. 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 Um, my favorite series to read, a, a book series that I feel like I've just, I read continually, is Lord of the Rings. Um, I read it nonstop. When I finish it, I just keep going. It's, it's just something that's always kind of in the background, never something that I'm reading on a daily basis, but always just when, I'm, when I find a moment where I'm like, what am I going to pick up and read? I, that's what I always go back to. And book three of Lord of the Rings, or the, the movies, if you've seen the movies, is Return of the King. Aragorn, son of Arathorn, takes his rightful place at the end of it in, in the throne in Minas Tirith as the king of Gondor. For some of you you're right now, you're like, yes, keep going. And others of you are like, I don't know what you just said. <laughs> And that's all right. If you ever watch the movies or read the books, I think there's something to it that Aragorn is, this, is, is wandering a, just a roamer in the wilderness that is go, even goes by a different name, and, and it's only slowly revealed through the books what his real identity is, and there's a crisis of identity as people had this hope for a king that would return and bring glory to Gondor and lead them to freedom and peace, and, and so it's rolled out, and finally, after, after the three full books, he takes the throne. I think this speaks to something that, that actually is something deep within all of us, that every one of us has some desire for a benevolent king, somebody that will lead us and will give us direction and, and, and help us and protect us and lead us toward peace and freedom. And I know that that sounds strange, like when, when we're sitting in D.C., which is like the seat of democracy, that we left the king, and we, we rejected monarchy, but we also have a complete obsession with British monarchy, even though we left him behind. <laughs> and it's amazing to me, it's always fascinating to me how interested Americans are in the royal family. Like, we fought a war to escape that. <laughs> but even within that, I think it still shows up in our politics, that every election season, we're looking for a savior. We're looking for somebody that, that we can tie ourselves to, that we think will bring us that freedom and peace, be out of their righteous reign and rule. And, and so we paint ourselves red and blue, not like people will at the Super Bowl today, like physically, but digitally and publicly. We want a king to come under. 
We want to be the one, we want, we, but, but in, in the same time, there's this internal struggle that shows up in this great American experiment of ours that we also want to be the ones calling the shots, and we want to be able to, dis, to discard a king when he fails us and fails our hopes and our expectations and our demands. And so today, what we'll see in our text is that Jesus is the king. When we're walking through the book of Acts, Acts shows us the beginnings of the church. And so for us as a church, this is important because it shows us the key emphases, how the church was started, the role of the Holy Spirit moving through God's people, and that same Spirit continues to move through his people today. And so we saw the ascension of Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit come upon the disciples in power, and now we've begun to look at the Apostle Peter's first sermon. It started last week by showing that Jesus is the Savior that we all need, that, that he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And we saw last week that Jesus came to fulfill what had been prophesied through the prophet Joel, that it would come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. And so for each of us, that's the Savior we need. And today, this Peter's sermon continues on in Acts chapter 2, and he shows that Jesus, our Savior, is also Jesus the King. And so this is what we read in Acts chapter 2. For David says concerning him, concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, that nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we, are, we all are witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so Peter continues, and as he preaches, he goes back to David as king, and he tells us about David. Now, for us, a little bit of context. For the Israelites, for the people in Jerusalem at this time, this would have been, just raising the, the person of David would have been something that was very clear, and what he was referencing was very clear. For us, we might need a little bit of help in getting the context of it. David was the, the archetype for all of Israel's kings, and there was a promise made to him that the Israelites longed for, that there would be anointed, an anointed one. The Hebrew word for the anointed one was Messiah. In Greek, the anointed one is Christ. I think that we get confused by that. I think that we can have a tendency to think that Christ is Jesus' last name. 
but it's not. It's actually the Greek word that means anointed one. And so whenever that language is used in the New Testament, Messiah or the Christ, it's actually referencing reference to prophecies that were made and, and commitments that were made to David. And so let's look at just real briefly. I want to show you how what Peter does here is he lines up who David is, and, and then he shows how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that David foreshadowed. So David was anointed as the king. And we see this, you can go back and read it in 1 Samuel 16 or 2 Samuel 5, that, that he was anointed as king, and it was, it was in the midst of the reign of the first king of Israel named Saul that the prophet Samuel came. And, you, and when you go read 1 Samuel 16, he was the least likely man to be anointed. But God told Samuel to go to Jesse, and that he had sons, and, to, and, and that he would show him which of his sons. And when Jesse lined up his sons to be seen by the prophet, David wasn't even in the lineup. He was the youngest, and he was out with the sheep, and so, so he had to call him in, and, and God made it clear that that was the one, that was the one to be anointed king. And in 2 Samuel 5, we finally see the inauguration of, of David's kingship. And under David's reign, he united the kingdom of Israel. He was also a man after God's own heart. That's a description of him that we read in 1 Samuel 13 that is also picked up in Acts 13 in, in, a, in a sermon by Paul. And so as a man after God's own heart, we see that in David's willingness to, to move toward repentance and his love for God and his trust for God. But David was also severely broken. He was a man who made big mistakes, and maybe, the, maybe the worst of which that he, that he took Bathsheba for himself when he saw a woman bathing on a rooftop and, and then ended up, ended up killing her husband, responsible not only for adultery and taking advantage of her, but also of killing her husband. So he's a broken man. Even still, he received a great promise. In 2 Samuel 7, we read this promise that God made to David, a covenant to him, and God promised him that he would have rest from his enemies, that, that he would establish a safe home and a house, and he said that I will establish your throne forever, and that David's name would be made great, that he would have a relationship with God as his father, and that God would discipline him as his son with, uh, with the rod of men and stripes of men, but that even when David messed up and was disciplined by God, that his love would never leave him. And so this is what looked ahead to the Messiah. And when we get into the prophets that, that were looking for the anointed one, the promised one, that's the promise that they were looking back to. That's what it meant to be the Messiah or the Christ, is that it was the anointed one, the, the one in the line of King David that would be the one to take the throne back and reign on that throne forever. And so it, that what's striking then is that what Peter shows us in Acts chapter 2 is he says, listen, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so David died. He was a man who died, and they, they, they knew where his tomb was. But even in the midst of his life and brokenness, the promises of God and his own death, David looked ahead to resurrection. He had confidence that resurrection would come. He had confidence that he would be in God's presence after his life was done. And so he looked ahead to that time. Now Peter makes the parallel to Christ. That Jesus came as the king. That he was resurrected to life. David looked ahead to resurrection and believed that it would someday come. And that was realized in Christ. 
And Peter says here, remember, this is just 50 days after the crucifixion, 50 days after Jesus had been killed and buried, and, and then he had been raised on the third day after. And just 50 days later, Peter stands up in Jerusalem with witnesses all around them and says, this is what happened. God, this Jesus, in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, it was a claim in the, in, right in the moment, just a couple of months later, that, could, that was verifiable because they had experienced the risen Christ. We read, read in Acts chapter 1 that, that he, Jesus was with them for 40 days after he resurrected. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to more than 500 people through that time. And so what David looked ahead to, Jesus actually realized where David lies in a tomb, Jesus wasn't, didn't stay buried. He was exalted and ascended to the right hand of God in glory. Where David had a promise that there would be some, uh, an eternal king in his line, Jesus received the promise of the Holy Spirit, and that was evidenced in Acts 2 as it was given to his people. Where David was a man who was deeply broken and yet a man after God's own heart, Jesus is the Holy One, and he was broken for us. And where David was anointed king over Israel, Jesus is the Lord in Christ, the king over all kings. So there's a parallel made here that Peter's drawing from, and using David's own psalms, two psalms that became favorites of the early church that we see used again and again throughout our New Testament. Psalm 16 is the first quotation, as, as he's saying, that there's, you won't let your holy one see corruption, you won't abandon my soul to Hades. And then when he, with the second quote that we saw was, was taken directly from Psalm 110. These words of the King David were applied to Jesus, who was born in the line of David, who was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And it was to show the fulfillment of God's promise, that an ultimate king came that was greater than anything that could have been imagined. And this is what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, that Paul prays in that chapter that God would open our eyes to to begin to understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of God's great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Jesus is the king. God has shown his power by raising him from the dead, and now he sits with, with the entire world made his footstool. And Peter's call here is, let all of us know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who was crucified. Now last week, when we looked at Jesus the Savior, we we looked at the context that was there for us in the passage, saying, okay, Jesus is the Savior that God has given for all people, but then we, it wasn't enough to stop there and stop with the theological. We wanted to press into the personal. How does this actually, what does this actually mean for us? And so similarly today, um, I would like to do the same. And I don't have a clock today, so who knows how long this is going to go. <laughs> um, you guys can set that up for me. For the sake of the church. <laughs> oh, it's off. Oh, there it is. Great. We're doing great. We have plenty of time. So we're going to take the time that we have left and look at Jesus, our King. 
not just the king, but what does it mean for him to be our king? How does it shape us if Jesus really is our king? We're gonna, Jesus says that, that he talked a lot about the kingdom in the Gospels. You can go read and, and see that that was a common theme, that Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and that has a shaping impact on us as individuals. If we're going to follow Jesus or understand what Christianity even is about, it also has a shaping influence on us as a people and as God's people. And so Jesus calls us in Matthew 6, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And, and so... We're called by him to seek his kingdom. So let's look today. We've got, I've got seven points on what it means, what it looks like to be a people who are shaped by the kingship of Jesus Christ. First, we'll be a people who are serious about truth. We live in a post-truth age. And that's been, it's been something that's been building for decades, but we seem to have reached a unique point. Have you seen, there's, a, there's been a commercial run the last several weeks on CNN. Whatever you think of CNN, that's not the point. There's been a commercial running that the screen is white and it just has an apple. Have you guys seen this? And it just says, this is an apple. Some people might try to tell you this is a banana. They might scream, banana, 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 over and over again. They might put banana in all caps. You might not even start to believe that this is a banana, but it's not. This is an apple. That's a real discussion. <laughs> and it's crazy that we've reached this point, but it's the logical extension of postmodernity. We've gotten to a point of silliness. It's really difficult to sort through what is truth and what is fiction and what, is, what have been adapted facts. And, and so in that, if Jesus is our king, his people will be serious about truth. And we'll battle for truth and fight for truth. And, and so that will be, that's true of biblical truth, that we will, his people will stand on God's word given to us and be unbending on, on his truth that's been, that's been shown through his word for us. But it will also infuse other aspects of who we are and, and how his people work. I mean, think about how it will change in, at work if you are battling for and fighting for and willing to expose truth. Not just for personal gain, but to push into truth for what truth is. Think about how it would change your relationships if we actually are truthful with each other. doesn't mean you have to be mean, but to be open and honest. Because we can't actually have relationships with each other if truth isn't at the center of it. It turns into a passive-aggressive nightmare to try to wade through and then that you won't actually get to the core of who somebody is if you're not being willing to be open and truthful with them. They'll never get to know you. There'll always be a barrier between you. It'll spin into gossip and slander and, and instead, imagine if we were able to press into what's actually true. It'll infuse our church. And as a church, we won't bow to the ever-shifting winds of cultural favor we'll cling to the truth, believing that Jesus is our king. A second way that it shows up is that we'll be a people who are serious about holiness, about personal holiness. This is important for us. The lights are flickering in the kids' room and they're screaming. It's, it's very distracting. I'm a little all over the place this morning. You'll have to bear with me. We'll be serious about personal holiness. Listen, if the church actually believes that Jesus is king, that means that it will have implications for us at a personal level. Some of you here might be here this morning because you're trying Christianity out a little bit. 
to see if it works for you, to see if it's what will fulfill you and make you happy. And I can tell you now, I'll save you some time, if you're just looking for Christianity to be the next thing that you add into your life that will affirm you and make you your best self on the way that you're imagining, it probably isn't going to work out for you. Because the claims of Christ is that he's the king. And that doesn't mean that, that, it's gonna be, that, that we get to shape him in our image. Remember what I said earlier, that we all want a benevolent king, but we also want one that we can dismiss as soon as he contradicts us. C.S. Lewis said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. <laughs> if you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. See, he got it. He understood that Jesus didn't, isn't king to make us comfortable, but he is king to lead us into actual rest and peace. And so often what we pursue in our own comfort, the desires we, and we know this, that we, we live self-destructive lives. Now, this shows up most clearly in kids. Like if you have a year and a half year old kid, especially a boy, they are on a constant suicide mission. Like you are just trying to keep them alive for the first few years of their life so that you can get them to school and they can learn some things. And, and, but in that interim phase, like in that early phase, like it's a suicide mission. And those things don't actually go away for us. We just get more savvy about the things we pursue. And so, but if, you're, if Christ really is our king, then it's going to shape our lives. His holiness will start to be reflected in our lives because we'll be reshaped in his image and likeness. Now, for some of you that you may have some intellectual objections to Christianity, things you're wrestling through, and I would encourage you to press in because I really do believe that this is truth, that these are eyewitnesses, that, this, that these are real events, that, this is, this is, that Christianity is actually the one system that makes sense of the world that we see around us, and so press into your intellectual objections. But I think so often the intellectual objections that I see from people aren't actually about the, the validity of Christianity. It's about not wanting to come under the authority of a king. Holiness is not about God restricting us from fun, though. Holiness is about God knowing what's actually best for us, and trusting that, and submitting to him in our lives. And so if, we're, if Jesus really is our king, we'll be a people who are serious about truth. We'll also be a people who are serious about holiness. The third, we'll be a people who are serious about justice. Um, I had the privilege this past week uh, to be, I was at a conference, and I had the privilege to meet Dr. John Perkins this week. Um, he, John Perkins was, is a civil rights hero. He's 87 years old and still writing and still speaking. And I even got a few minutes one-on-one -on -one with him, which was incredible for me. I was hearing him speak, and I was invited into a smaller dinner with some pastors in, in urban churches, and so they let me come into that, and I showed up early for the dinner and got about five minutes, just me and, and Dr. Perkins. And in that time, I was amazed, I'm amazed at his compassion, at his gentleness, at his, but still a fire that burns within that man. And, and he talked to us about, about justice and the importance of, of continuing to work for those who are on the margins of our society and the, the love that should drive us toward it. And, you know, it's, it's crazy to me, hearing a man like Dr. Perkins speak, that some Christians will believe that focusing on justice means that we've let go of the gospel, well, other times, which it, it can happen, but, but it, you, know, you see this happen within Christianity that some people focus too much and, leave, and do leave behind 
the truth of the gospel, but others neglect justice entirely, thinking it's way too political, so we're just going to hunker down here and just talk about things in the sky. But do you understand that the statement, Jesus is our king, is inherently a political statement? Now, it's not partisan in the way that we think about politics, but it is political. It's saying that there is an authority above us that is outside of the immediate politics that we see in front of us. And it's actually a more helpful and more hopeful political statement because James Hunter, a sociologist, says that our politics are always the crudest simplification of public life. A biblical view of, of life and sin and brokenness is complex and deals with the realities in front of us. But the people of God need to rise above politicization of issues and rhetoric and deal with real problems and do real work. And so we, as, if Jesus really is our king, then, church, it's going to mean that we're invested in issues of justice in our city, that we're coming alongside people who need help, people who have been marginalized, people who need to be given light and hope. We just can't cut sections on justice out of the Bible. So personal holiness is great, and it also includes justice. And as we even hear Jesus is our king, my guess is that in this church, we have the, we have the privilege of being, being politically a very diverse church. And so for some of you, you immediately go to, oh, Jesus is our king. That means there are some things in my life that I need to get straight, that I need to work out, that I need to bring under submission to his reign. And, and that's good. If that was where you immediately went, we probably need to push you a little bit toward the side of justice. For some of you, you immediately went to the justice side. Jesus is king. That means it has implications for how the kingdom of God gets worked out. That's great. It also has implications on personal holiness. And so we all need to hear this word today. But hear this. like Isaiah 53 is a passage that so many of us love to cling to on what, who Christ is and what he has done, that, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Praise God for that, that we have the opportunity for personal redemption and salvation through Christ, that it's through his wounds that we are healed, that it is, that it is through him that we have a chance to come to God and be reconciled to God. And then we also need to see that Isaiah 58 is just five chapters later. In Isaiah 58, it shows us what Paul says later on, that, that once we've been reconciled to God, we become agents of and ministers of reconciliation into this world. And so in Isaiah 58, God comes after the Israelites for, for the way that they are worshiping, and he says to them, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. 
Church, we can't stop at Isaiah 53 as if, that's, as if the gospel is only personal. If Jesus is our king, it's going to shape the way that his people engage in a broken world. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 4. We have this, the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the gospel of Luke. That in, in chapter 3, he's baptized and the spirit descends on him. In chapter 4, the spirit leads him out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. Then he returns in the power of the spirit to Galilee, to his hometown. And, and reports were spreading about him. And, and it's, we read this, that this is the very start of his ministry in Luke's gospel. That he came into Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he dropped the mic. <laughs> what it goes on to tell us in Luke is that all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. And so he went on talking because he was like, I don't think you heard me. And as he went on talking, when they heard all these things, the synagogue, they were filled with wrath, and they rose up to drive him out of the town and tried to throw him off a cliff. So the people that Jesus was responding to didn't like it when he said that the gospel actually had to include good news to the poor, that the gospel included freedom to captives, that it included sight to the blind, and that, that he was bringing the year of the Lord's favor. Church, if we're not concerned with those things... If the gospel we're preaching doesn't touch on those things, on good news to the poor and freedom for captives and, and sight for the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and the year of the Lord's favor has come through Christ by his spirit and now through his people, if we're not proclaiming those things and preaching those things and working toward those things, then we are preaching and living out a deficient gospel. We're only getting one part of the spectrum. So yes, we need to be concerned with truth, we need to be concerned with personal holiness, and we need to be concerned with and serious about justice and about being God's people in, his in this place where he has put us. In that, I also know that some of you are tired. For some of you are uncomfortable talking about issues of justice. For some of you, you're like, well, thank you, it's about time, but I'm, I'm worn out. Fourth today is that if Jesus is our king, we'll be a people who are serious about hope. Um, this is one of the enduring legacies, to me, one of the things that's most inspiring about the civil rights movement. Um, today is the first Sunday of February. February is Black History Month. Um, if you haven't taken time to educate yourself on the history of this nation and what has happened in this place, this is a great time to start. And go and do some reading. Go read W.B. Du Bois. Read Carter Woodson. Read Frederick Douglass. Read some of the, some of the authors that have been foundational in shaping. And, and go and talk to people. Find people who are different than you are and listen and learn. You know, this year also marks 50 years since the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 50 years. On April 3rd, 1968, 
the night before he was shot and killed, he spoke at Bishop Charles Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. And he, he said prophetically, the way he ended his speech that night, is he said, well, he, he talked about the threats that he was receiving, that people were concerned for his life, that, that he had gotten on a plane in Atlanta that morning and, and people had warned him and they had to do extra checks through the luggage because people were concerned about a bomb being on the flight. And he said that he had been warned about tensions in Memphis. He said, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't really matter to me, <laughs> with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would love to live a, a long life, life, longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land, and I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. There was a deep abiding hope, a deep abiding hope, a rich theology that fueled that hope, that allowed people in the face of suffering to endure it. It was a hope in an eternal King Jesus, that, but it, it, it wasn't a, a king that limited his work to some future place. There's a belief that, that what we read in Acts chapter 2, that he right now reigns as Lord and Christ, that he now reigns over this place and the world to come, but he can act in space and time now. If Jesus is our king, we'll be serious about hope. Fifth, we'll be a people whose loyalties are reshaped into a new citizenship. Jesus is the perfect king we long for. His, he, he will implement a perfect reign for eternity. He will, he will bring perfect justice for all humanity. He will have perfect victory over evil. These are the things we're promised. When you get to Revelation 21, is that it's a new heavens and a new earth, a renewed creation, that all of history is headed toward that end. And Jesus is in, this, in the work of redeeming and renewing this place and that there will not be any more tears or sorrow or suffering or death and the presence of God will be with his people for eternity. And Redemption Hill, that's our hope. That's what the kingship of Jesus gives us. But if Jesus is our king, it re does reshape our loyalties. It means that we can be invested in different spheres and not make those the ultimate. It means that those of you who actually work in the public square, those of you who actually work in public life and are invested in politics can be freed to be a Republican, can be freed to be a Democrat, can be freed to be independent or libertarian or whatever other parties and movements I'm missing. That you can go and invest yourself into those things without making those things your ultimate hope. So you can actually be free to be fully invested in the place that you feel passionate about and bring, bring the, the values and ethics of Christ's kingdom to bear and not believe that people on the other side of the aisle are inherently evil just because of policy choices. But be able to see that Christ is the one who reigns over it all. Look at Joseph and Daniel. Joseph reigned as the second in command under Pharaoh. He saved lives by storing grain in, 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 in a time of plenty, and when famine came, ended up saving his own family. Look at the life of Daniel. Go and read the first few chapters of Daniel and see how he served Nebuchadnezzar and stepped in under a wicked king. It is possible for Christians to be deeply engaged in public life without idolizing 
politics. Look at William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce came into Parliament in 1780. He started fighting, or he fought for abolition through his entire career in Parliament, and finally began to see glimmers of hope that he would win in 1807. 27 years that man fought to actually treat people with people and see that all people have dignity. 27 years. And he didn't even see the fullness of it come to bear. He died, and he fought for its implementation until he died in 1833, and it was only after that point that it fully was implemented. So there are examples for us biblically and in history of God's people investing themselves politically in ways that rise above the rhetoric and the, and the brokenness of the system. And so I believe that God has placed us here for the good of this city. I believe that he's placed us here for the good of this nation. Each one of us has unique opportunities and callings, but if Christ is our king, then that's what makes it so that we can come together in this place, no matter what our background, no matter what our, our political ideologies, and be united as one people. That's only possible in Christ. Sixth, we'll be a people characterized by a settled rest. If Christ is our king, then we're secure. There's a passage in Matthew 6 that I already quoted earlier that Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let me give you the greater context of that passage. Jesus was teaching and he said, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They, are ne they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value, of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to, the, to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow will be thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. Therefore don't be anxious, saying, what will we eat, what, will we, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Believing that Jesus is our king frees us from anxiety and worry. As Spurgeon was quoted as saying that, Charles Spurgeon, a preacher, was quoted as saying that, that worry and anxiety don't empty tomorrow of its trouble. They just empty today of its strength. So this, I think it's possible for us to, as, if, as we read these words from Jesus saying, don't worry, oh, you have little faith. And there's times when we can read this and go like, and even be self-condemning in that saying, oh man, when I worry, I must be sinning and it's wrong. And then you feel guilty and you feel shamed. And then you worry about what Jesus' view of you because you feel guilt and shame. And you get in this cycle where you just spiral into greater anxiety and worry because now you're not worried about clothing and food. You're worried about God's wrath on you because you worried. <laughs> I, and I think that, that kind of misses Jesus' point here. <laughs> Here, these are words of comfort. He's saying, you got nothing to worry about. You have a father who loves you. You have a father who cares for you. Look at the birds, he takes care of them. Look at the flowers, he takes care of them. He's saying, rest, don't be anxious. Tomorrow will be anxious about itself. 
It's got enough trouble. You don't need to bring tomorrow's trouble into today. Martin Luther used to say to a young man, Philip, he would come and just put his hands on Philip's shoulders and say, Philip, stop worrying. And he would say something along the lines of, let Philip cease to rule the world. Stop trying to rule the world, Philip. Then you'll stop worrying. You can't worry and let God be the king. They just don't go together. For some of you today, it may be that what you need to hear is that you can let go and stop trying to be the king. Sleep for us is God's reminder that we aren't needed for several hours a day. <laughs> About a third of our life is spent sleeping so that we can be reminded we're not actually reigning over this thing. That while we sleep, this world still spins. The sun goes down and the sun rises. People go about their business, and it's not on our shoulders. And I know that's hard for us to believe, but, but we, we are given freedom in Christ to have a settled rest, that we can let go of our anxiety and seek his kingdom above everything else and trust that he'll bring what we need along the way. So rest in that. Seventh, and finally today, we'll be a people who love. And Jesus said this, that you, people will know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another, and this is what binds everything together. Why are, if Jesus is our king, why are we serious about truth? Because our love will drive us to a desire that people will come to know the truth. Why are we serious about personal holiness? Because, because our love for Jesus will compel us to try to reflect him more clearly, and his holiness in our lives will mean that we're freed to love others more purely. And why are we serious about justice? Because it's out of love for those who bear God's image and likeness that, that we work to lift up the dignity of all humanity. And why are we serious about hope? Well, it's because we have a king who loves us. And we have a great hope that he's going to come through in the end. But why, do we, why do we have reshaped loyalties? Well, it's because our love for people won't allow us to marginalize them. But instead will bind us together across things that typically divide us. And why can we rest? Because Jesus loves us. This is a classic, simple Sunday school song. To be able to actually say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. He is, we are weak, but he is strong. Like, can you actually sing that from your heart today? I know it's simple. But can, can you believe that today? that you're brought into the family of God in the church, that through Christ, that within the family of God, that we're called to love each other and show Christ's love to each other and, be, and encourage each other to be reminded of his love for us. And we're not gonna actually have hope to do the other six if we're not a people who can love. But the great hope we have is that love is the one gift that the Spirit gives every Christian. So listen, Jesus is the answer to the deepest longings of our souls. He's the true and righteous king that will stamp out all evil and chaos and suffering, and he will bring his righteous rule. And in the midst of a broken and violent world, in the midst of injustice and fear, Jesus can give us hope. Our ultimate enemies of sin and death and Satan have been defeated. 
Christ is the ultimate king. He came in the line of David. He came the holy one whose soul was not abandoned to Hades and did not see corruption so that we could have hope that in him our souls will not be abandoned to Hades and we will be brought into God's presence in the end. He is the one that David looked ahead to and said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And so we have the call to all of us today to know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Him who was crucified, him who was raised, him who ascended to the throne in heaven and now reigns as sovereign over all things. And so we look forward to the return of the king, our long-awaited king. And in the meantime, we as a people are called and commissioned to live in light of his inaugurated but not yet consummated kingdom, showing the values of his kingdom in our lives, in our work, in our church. So church, let's not just sit back theologically and postulate the idea we have a king that reigns in the heavens and Jesus is coming back. Let's lean in and begin to see what it would look like in our lives personally, in our church, as a family, and as we go out into this city. And let's pray. Father, we need your help. For every one of us this morning, there are things that we are clinging to, things that we won't let go of. There are things that we don't want to let go of because we we think that they're actually where we find our hope. And so would you free us today to trust the kingship of our Lord Jesus, to see that your power has been brought to bear in him, raising him from the dead, to look ahead with hope to a time when he will return and, and bring a renewed heavens and earth and restore all things. And Father, we pray that you would move through your people, that we would be bound together by love and motivated to reflect the values and the ethics and the love and the community that Jesus has shaped in this church. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.